Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, March Madness is here. We're going to have a tournament this year. Have you filled out a bracket? You know, uh, I have not. Um, and I have to admit that my knowledge of college basketball has gone over something of a cliff. Um, but But I will do that. Yeah, that one fell fast for me too. Uh, my my plan is to wait and to uh, binge today's episode of Take Line, the amazing new podcast from Jason Concepcion uh, and Renee Montgomery, so that I could be entertained, uh, informed, and filled with hot takes before I do my bracket. But so you know, you might want to do that as well. That is a great segue. Uh, I don't even need another reason to want to check that out because I I love uh, everything about Take Line and Jason Concepcion and. Today's guests are Jeremy Lin and Dan Pfeiffer. I, I don't know that I could actually <laughs> yeah. I could design a, a an episode better tailored to you. It's like if you told me a you. decade ago that there was going to be like a a form of content that would involve Jeremy Lin and Dan Pfeiffer a decade hence, I, I would not have believed it, and I would have been very excited about it. Yeah, Dan Sanity. Uh, subscribe to Take Line wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we have lots of new merch in the Crooked Merch Store, including items uh, specifically designed to denigrate the filibuster. We know our audience here. So you can only get that at Crooked. Go to crooked.com slash store now to shop. Uh, we got a great show today. We're going to cover the intelligence community's brand new assessment about efforts to influence the 2020 elections. Uh, Jared Kushner has come out of hiding. We'll explain why and what that moron has to say. The secretaries of defense and state are in Asia this week. Uh, We'll get into what their agenda is. We'll talk about major protests in the UK and Australia about women's rights and women's safety, uh, efforts to vaccinate the globe, the situation on the southern border, and a new segment that I've I've tentatively titled uh, Why Tucker Carlson is a Dick Now. I don't know if we can workshop that. Maybe the world else can weigh in. Sounds good to me, though. We could do one of those on, on Jared Kushner, too. Yeah, that's a good point. And then, Ben, you did our interview this week. Who did you talk to and what do we get to hear? I did. It's a, it was a great interview with Mehrav Michaeli, uh, who is the chair of the Labor Party in Israel, uh, a woman who's breathed new life into the Labor Party. And we talk about the uh, upcoming Israeli election, what she's trying to do to, to rebuild labor, um, you know, the necessity of getting Netanyahu out and why that's been so hard uh, and how she looks at issues like the Palestinian issue and the U.S. relationship. So, Definitely check it out. I mean, Tommy was nice to not just talk about some controversy involving Israel, but to really hear uh, from an Israeli about uh, how she's looking at the state of politics in her country and in and, and, and this upcoming election. I'm really excited to listen to that. There was a great piece in the New York Times recently about her. Uh, I was shocked that she wanted to come on the show because normally uh, people just pluck out things you and I say about being at Yahoo and brand us anti-Semites in Israel. But it's nice that they want to just engage in a policy conversation. What a crazy idea. Well, one of the things that she said that was so telling, right, uh, and because it, it relates to both uh, labor and, and to the debate here on Israel, is that part of what the left has lacked for uh, decades since Yitzhak Rabin's assassination is confidence, right, is the sense that you can take positions and not be afraid of being called names. And and, and she, you know, check it out. She has some really interesting insights into um, in, into the psychology of a party like Labor standing on its own two feet again and, and proclaiming that they're willing and ready to govern. That's great. That's great. Um, okay. Speaking of elections, let's talk about the 2020 election and the latest news about efforts to influence it from uh, bad actors abroad. So the the ODNI, the Director of National Intelligence's office, just released this report. Here is some of what they found. Uh, 
Importantly, there is no evidence where they found no evidence that a foreign actor tried to mess with the voting processes themselves, right? There's there's no evidence someone tried to switch votes from Trump to Biden or Biden to Trump or to mess with voter registration, stuff like that. So that's good. But the intelligence community does believe with high confidence that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized a whole bunch of propaganda efforts designed to denigrate Joe Biden, to denigrate Democrats generally, to prop up Trump, and then undercut the political process generally. Uh, Russia did this through a network of, of you know, useful idiots basically in the U.S. media and you know, prominent political figures, some of whom were close to Trump. Uh, the report names Konstantin Kalimnik, who is a former staffer for Paul Manafort, also linked to Russian intelligence, uh, and it names a Ukrainian politician uh, as people who specifically laundered Russian disinformation to the U.S. media, presumably places like OAN and to idiots like Rudy Giuliani. Um, the report also says that Iran carried out a covert influence campaign to denigrate Trump and to undercut public confidence in the electoral process. They also found smaller scale efforts by other groups that weren't really significant sounding. Uh, oddly, to me at least, Ben, the report says that China did not try to influence the election. I thought that was curious that they mentioned that. Um, I don't know, Ben, I felt like we knew most of this, but like, did anything jump out at you from this this report? No, I mean, I think we knew most of this. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, the, the, the couple notable things are, it's like normal now <laughs> that this happens, right? Like this would have yeah. been like a blockbuster thing in 2012, right? But after 2016, 2020, the idea that Russia tries to influence our election um, and mounts these kind of information warfare campaigns, that's what happens. And again, I think that the main message here is less, you know, the the genius nature of some Russian troll farm and more the willing nature, whether because they're idiots or whether because they don't really care about American democracy, you know, the the right wing media and political figures, including people in like the United States Senate, like Ron Johnson, who is basing whole investigations on Russian disinformation. It, mm-hmm. It's like normal. It's not even going to make a ripple, I think, in our political discourse that the Republican Party and people around Trump were like willing collaborators with Russian disinformation. And again, it doesn't really matter if they knew that they were talking to like a Russian spy. They they clearly knew that a lot of this information was bullshit and they ran with it anyway. So to protect ourselves against Russian disinformation, it's not about like going to war with Russia. It's about not having insane conspiracy theories that drive our political and media discussion. That's something we have to do at home, you know. Yeah, the trolling is coming from inside the house, guys. This yeah. is yeah. this is a symbiotic relationship between Russian intel and the Republican Party in many instances. Exactly, exactly. Not ideal. Uh, okay, well, we dispatched with that quickly. Let's talk COVID. Um, because I think, I imagine, all of us were excited last week when President Biden announced that he was directing states to make all adults eligible to get a COVID vaccine by May 1st. Uh, now, Biden is able to do that because the Trump administration pre-purchased a bunch of different COVID vaccines as part of Operation Warp Speed, uh, even before they were approved by the FDA. And the Biden administration has done a really great job of ramping up that process and distributing those shots to people in states. But vaccines are scarce, right? And many countries, especially poorer countries, haven't been able to get enough doses for their populations, not even close. And that's bad for the people in these countries. It's also bad for us in America, because more the more COVID spreads, the more it mutates and it can put us at risk again. So the whole world needs to get vaccinated. And the question is, how do we do that? So one important piece of the puzzle is called COVAX, which is a, a global coalition working to distribute doses to lower income countries. There's another debate about whether the U.S. should be sending some of its surplus 
plus doses overseas because we purchase way too many. But then there's another idea that is really not getting discussed enough, which is this request from 57 countries to the World Trade Organization to temporarily waive patent protections for COVID vaccines. So Bernie Sanders sent a letter to President Biden asking that he come out in favor of this proposal. Uh, on the House side, I saw Reps Jan Schakowsky, Rosa DeLauro, Earl Blumenauer. They sent a similar letter in support of temporarily lifting certain restrictions on the manufacturing of like COVID-related diagnostics, treatments, vaccines. Then I don't have a clue uh, how vaccine manufacturing works, but it, oddly enough, like this is what you and I have been talking about on this show for months. Clearly, the world would benefit from essentially open sourcing everything we know about COVID, as well as the ways we can stop it. It seems like a no-brainer to be. What do you think is holding this up? Is this just like lobbying from pharma? Like, What's the impediment here? Well, I, I think it's a no-brainer. Um, from a humanitarian perspective and a global public health perspective, you want as many people to get as vaccinated in as many places as possible, as fast as possible. Um, if, if you want to advance that to self-interest too, by the way, um, you know, the U.S. standing in the world, let's just say it's taken a bit of a hit over the last few years. <laughs> um, Fair. What better way to try to, you know, Joe Biden keeps saying America is back and that's great. Um, but like what better way to actually demonstrate that than to have America lead the world in getting billions of people vaccinated? We have the resources we have you know, through so many of the vaccines, you know, being developed here in the United States. We have the innovation here um, to having, you know, created a bunch of the vaccines in this country to make that happen much faster than it would otherwise. So I, I think it's a no-brainer. I, I think there's two potential constraints, right? One is the perception that, you know, America is helping to vaccinate people in other countries, you know, particularly maybe before everybody in America has been vaccinated. But look, as long as Joe Biden knows that the the vaccine is not being slowed down and reaching Americans through some effort to reach people globally, I think you can make that case that, you know what, we're, th this is not some America first ideology administration. This is an administration that sees our fates as tied together with people around the world. And no, we're not going to slow down at all getting the vaccines to as many Americans as fast as we can. But we can move on a parallel track to get the vaccine disseminated globally as well. And then secondly, I'm sure that there's some, you know, profit motive in big pharma or some precedent that they don't want to set. But like, this is an unprecedented thing. This is a once in a century global public health emergency pandemic, like just bulldoze right over those concerns. And there has to be ways, you know, I'm sure that the, the pharma companies are being compensated for all the vaccines they're being purchased to begin with. Um, this is one of those cases where, there's just a right thing to do. And so you figure out a way to do it. And by the way, doing the right thing, I think, will go a long way towards the United States once again, putting itself forward as a country that is a leader in the world, not just because we say we are, but because of the things that we do. Yeah. God forbid we set a precedent that uh, everyone has access to yeah. medications that <laughs> yeah, are life and death in the middle of a pandemic, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I can understand the concern about, look, we bought like two or three times more vaccines than we needed, doses than we needed. I could see the how easily it could be demagogued if Republicans were to say, oh, Joe Biden's sending your vaccine overseas. That's why you can't get one yet. Sure. But that's not even what this proposal is. They're saying let manufacturers in like South Africa or India or other places make the vaccines by by lifting restrictions on the intellectual property. Like Again, I, I don't know what it takes 
to manufacture an mRNA-based vaccine. Like, I don't know if these countries could do it, but it seems like an idea we should consider. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think we absolutely should, you know, pursue that idea, frankly. And, but even on the surplus vaccines, right? Like, you know, you don't live in fear of those those arguments, those kind of America yeah. first arguments, as long as you know that you are doing everything you can to, to if an American wants a vaccine, you, you're moving it as fast as possible to, to reach that American arm. There's no, again, no reason what we have to toss out a huge amount of surplus vaccines because we're afraid of, or sit on them because we're afraid of the perception that people in other countries might get them. I mean, I mean, yeah. we have to break out of that psychology here. Um, and, and there's a real opportunity on both these scores. And, and yeah, on the second one, you know, it's funny, like the, the, um, I was talking to a British friend who was watching the the Meghan and Harry interview and was like jarred because she doesn't usually watch American television by the fact that all the ads were for um, were for drugs, basically. Oh yeah, because um, you know, they have socialized medicine there, right? So the idea right. that you know, it, you know, like there's like there's something already uncomfortable about the the profit motive attached to life saving drugs in this country. Yeah, I get it. We don't have we don't have socialized medicine. Okay, but for this. For a pandemic that is killing people, that is putting the global economy at risk and global supply chains and the capacity for Americans to travel to places, there are plenty of self-interested reasons. If you wanted, if you don't buy into the kind of global humanitarian argument, which I think we do, you can mount plenty of self-interested reasons around American standing, around the global economy, or, or, you know, around the, the capacity for Americans to be safe in other places that you'd want to get as much vaccine to as many places as fast as possible. And this feels like a very good idea to uh, to do that. Yeah. And also just so listeners know, I mean, this isn't a challenge just for, for low-income countries. Europe is in a really tough spot right now because uh, a bunch of the countries in Europe, Spain, France, Italy, have stopped vaccinating people with the AstraZeneca vaccine because of fears about uh, that it might potentially be creating blood clots. Hopefully they sort that out quickly. But you know, a lot of places are way behind us. Cases are spiking. So we got to move on this. Um, Ben, you want to talk about but Jared Kushner for just a little bit? I think it would be you fun. You know, yeah, we, we, we you know, uh, national treasure, Jared Kushner. National treasure. Let's give him what they want. Okay, so apparently he's writing a book about working in the Trump White House and why Jared thinks that he is a hero for negotiating uh, peace agreements between Israel and countries uh, that they were not at war with. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the so-called Abraham Accords. Um, Jared must now have a, a ghostwriter on retainer because he started publishing op-eds. This one was in the Wall Street Journal. So I figured we could go through some of the quotes and just talk about uh, his genius. So this is how it starts. The geopolitical earthquake that began with the Abraham Accords hasn't ended. (laughs) We we are witnessing the last vestiges of what has been known as the Arab-Israeli conflict. Quite a bold statement there, Ben. Let's see what evidence he has to back that up. Quote, Every time Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tweets something positive in Arabic about an Arab leader, it reinforces that Israel is rooting for the success of the Arab world. Does it? Okay. <laughs> okay. Good, good to know. It, it reinforces uh, the fact that they're rooting for the success of a small number of Arab autocrats who are brutally repressing their own people and cynically turning their backs on the Palestinians. But I, I digress. No, that's, yeah, look, fair. Uh, here's another big block quote, and then we'll, we'll pause for discussion. 
One of the reasons the Arab-Israeli conflict persisted for so long was the myth that it could be solved only after Israel and the Palestinians resolved their differences. That was never true. The Abraham Accords exposed the conflict as nothing more than a real estate dispute between Israelis and Palestinians that need not hold up Israel's relations with the broader Arab world. It will ultimately be resolved when both sides agree on an arbitrary boundary line. Ben, let's pause there. Can you think of a more condescending way <laughs> to refer to the desire for the Palestinian people to have a state besides calling it a, a, a real estate dispute? I mean, that is mind boggling. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, imagine being Palestinian in your entire national identity, your entire individual identity, your experience of occupation or life in a refugee camp has been shaped by this conflict. And then some guy who's like the scion of a crooked, uh, oh, pardon the pun for the company. Yeah, don't call him crooked. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, a synonym for crooked uh, real estate family from New Jersey whose main experience in life was buying the New York Observer for his uh, own edification and entry into certain New York media social circles uh, somehow becomes the second most important person in the United States, and then tells you that your whole identity is essentially a real estate deal. It's it's basically akin to the kind of real estate deals he was probably in, where you displace people to make way for a gaudy and ugly <laughs> skyscraper, paying them no compensation, and then telling them that life is just one big real estate deal. I mean, it's a metaphor for how we approach the whole thing, which is this is a, a conflict in which the Palestinians just need to be dictated to what their terms of surrender are. And then, you know, he has to be celebrated as a peacemaker, you know? Uh, just incredible. Yeah, a, a real estate deal that has also impacted a lot of Israeli lives as well. Uh, but, you know, look, Jared read a, a Tom Friedman book on the flight over to Tel Aviv. So, you know, he learned something. Um, so Jared takes like a little odd swerve in this op-ed. He then writes, quote, the Biden administration is making China a priority in its foreign policy, and rightly so. One of Mr. Trump's greatest legacies will be changing the world's view of China's behavior. Apparently, America found China when uh, Donald Trump got into office. But then he, Jared gets to the Iran deal. So I'm going to read another long quote, see what you think about this. The Biden administration, however, has one asset that the Trump administration never had, a relationship with Iran. While many were troubled by the Biden team's opening offer to work with Europe and rejoin the Iran deal, known as the JCPOA, I saw it as a smart diplomatic move. The Biden administration called Iran's bluff. It revealed to the Europeans that the JCPOA is dead and only a new framework can bring stability for the future. When Iran asked for a reward merely for initiating negotiations, President Biden did the right thing and refused. So. Jared thinks he's being cute here, right? He's pretending to compliment Biden, but really what he's advocating for is abandoning the entire Iran deal and making it exponentially more complicated. Ben, do you do you like this advice? Uh, <laughs> do you think maybe Biden should have him into the Oval for for a chat, get his advice? I mean, you know, again, like, first of all, there's so many, like, I, th this guy, like, okay, nobody was aware that the Chinese Communist Party had some complications <laughs> until Donald Trump came along and, and launched a trade war to get them to buy some more soybeans while devastating uh, huge sectors of the American economy at the same time, right? In the same way that nobody, it had occurred to nobody before that that you would try to make you know, normalization deals between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Um, you, you know, and it does matter that this guy is an odious character who contributed to the death of 500,000 Americans and the near death of American democracy. I mean, 
if he's wrong about all those other things, uh, it may be worth, you know, subjecting his uh, his opinions on these matters to to a bit of scrutiny here, um, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to launder his reputation, which is, you know, belongs in the complete garbage dump of history through like a handful of normalization deals that he basically purchased uh, with arms um, you know, with the, the Emiratis and, and with Bahrain um, and, and, you know, this tough on China stance that is now like in vogue across like the political spectrum so that, you know, he can somehow come out on the other end of the historical accounting of the Trump years as like a thinker, you know, as like a, a junior Henry Kissinger here. Right. Yep. And, yep. and like that's fucking bullshit. And it, but it shows you cynically how much he thinks that's going to work. And you know what? He might be right because look at the response to the Abraham Accords. Like you know, look at look at uh, like how much everybody's rushing to define themselves in the most hawkish possible terms on China, without you know even pausing to consider nuance along the way. I think on the JCPOA, um, I, if I were the Biden people, um, I would wonder why Jared Kushner is praising. Uh, my policy at this point. <laughs> that would bum you know, me out too. It would bum me out because I think he sees the writing on the wall, which is that the Biden people appear tentative to re-enter the JCPOA. And he wants to set up a framework wherein he can say, well, look, you know, they decided that all this leverage we gave them with our sanctions and decision to leave the JCPOA was better than returning to the nuclear deal, which had actually solved the problem here. And so- I would actually take this in the Biden White House as a shining, blinking red light that maybe what I'm doing is not right because Jared Kushner is finding words to praise it. Yeah, this is a, this is a, a, a PDB uh, on George W. Bush's desk in August of 2001. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so remember before we were uh, a little hard on Joe Biden for for not you know punishing Mohammed bin Salman himself, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia in any way, uh, for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, Washington Post journalist. Uh, Jared Kushner was the person actively covering that up, right? So Joe Biden, they put out the fact that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, was directly responsible for Khashoggi's murder. Jared Kushner was WhatsApping the guy all day long, apparently, according to reports. So Later in this op-ed, Jared starts to shill for the Saudis, surprise, surprise, and he writes, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel is in sight. Relations with Israel are in the Saudi national interest and can be achieved if the Biden administration leads. So again, I don't think anyone's arguing against some sort of uh, the fact that normalization between the Saudis and Israel would be good, but it does seem like he's dangling it out there uh, in an attempt to get the Biden folks to overlook all the other terrible things the Saudis are doing, both to Khashoggi and in Yemen, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and this, again, this is the whole problem, you know, that we identify with the Abraham Accords to begin with. It, it's not that we think normalization between Israel and Arab states is is anything but a good thing on it, on its face. The question is, to what end is that being put, right? And to me, it seems like you know, whether you're Mohammed bin Salman in particular in Saudi Arabia or you're, you know, the royal family that governs the UAE or Bahrain, it's being put to reinforcing their autocratic rule to getting tens of billions of dollars in arms, which was promised as a part of the Abraham Accords. Um, and, and by the way, to also fortifying the Israeli right, because, you know, it, uh, it's a win for Netanyahu um, in, in a way that Yes, you accomplished something that people wanted, which is normalization, but 
is it worth legitimizing Mohammed bin Salman for that goal? Isn't there a better way of making peace than this kind of get out of jail free card, literally, um, for a guy who chopped up somebody uh, in, in a consulate? Um, and and it, so it's not subtle. <laughs> you know, what what Jared's doing here is not subtle in carrying MBS's no. brief and saying, you know, the Abraham Accords don't happen without this guy. And oh, the next one could be the Saudis. But I'm sure that the price of the next one is, you know, no, no scrutiny of those arms sales to Saudi Arabia, no scrutiny of aspects of Saudi foreign or domestic policy here. And, and is that what is it worth a normalization deal with Israel to to do that for Mohammed bin Salman. I don't think so, in part because I think that for a normalization deal to be meaningful and lasting, you know, you have to make peace not just with autocrats, but with the people in those countries, you know? Um, true peace has to be among not just a handful of, of, of right-wing leaders. It has to be amongst the, the people who live in Israel and the people who live in, in the Arab world. And, you know, I, I worry about this. And I, I also want to see what kind of business Jared is going to be doing with Mohammed bin Salman in the years to come, you know? Oh, yeah, um, me it, too. You, you know, you already saw Steve Mnuchin, um, you know, launch some kind of investment venture capital fund or something in the Gulf. Um, well, just, he's got to be able to afford his wife's movies that he's, yeah. <laughs> he's bankrolling. How do you think those things get, those pieces of garbage get made? So, I mean, like, like, like watch this space of what Jared is going to be doing with MBS because like, you know what, American foreign policy shouldn't be for sale like, it, the, the quote, you know, quote unquote, peace should not be uh, put put up for sale. Um, nor should the capacity of an autocrat to act with total impunity, which is what MBS wants. And and I think the play here has been to basically launder the Gulf uh, out of the penalty box that they felt themselves getting in with the Democratic Party, launder MBS out, uh, get Jared a pathway to the most lucrative arrangement he could have post-Trump presidency with MBS. And, you know, lo and behold, like Palestinians get screwed. I think the Israelis don't get the true peace that they deserve. Um, and people who live in Saudi Arabia certainly don't get the the freedoms that, that we would want for them either. Well, listen, we're all just, we're grateful that Jared stopped the uh, the bloodshed and the ongoing Israel-Morocco war uh, with the uh, Abraham Accords. And, you know, listen, our commitment to you, the listener, is that we'll, we will read things written by Jared Kushner so that you don't have to. And you don't have to give the Wall Street Journal a click. The good news, Tommy, is that by the summer, this country should really be rocking. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just the summer of uh, 2021, uh, not the summer of 2020. Yeah, another great Jared Kushner quote. Okay, let's turn to Asia because there's a lot going on, especially with North Korea. So uh, Reuters reported over the weekend that Biden's team has tried to initiate talks with North Korea. They did so in mid-February, but the North has not responded. This, this news leaked just before Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, hit the road. They're traveling to Japan and South Korea for meetings. I think then they go to Alaska to meet with the Chinese for a summit there. Um, North Korea was not thrilled about their visit or the decision to proceed with a scaled-down version of joint U.S.-South Korean military exercises later this spring. Uh, in response, Ben, Kim Jong-un's sister put out a classic North Korean statement. Here's a bit of it. 
We take this opportunity to warn the new U.S. administration trying hard to give off a powder smell in our land. If it wants to sleep in peace in the coming four years, it had better refrain from causing a stink at its first step. They are about to bring a biting wind, <laughs> not warm wind expected by all in the spring days of March. I mean, Ben, that's the good shit right there. I, I admire I, the I, I dedication to the 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 metaphor or whatever you want to call it, the, the smell analogy, you know, very, very, very consistently drawn there. Yeah. Look, it works. It's good stuff. So look, the, the good news is North Korea hasn't launched more ballistic missiles. They haven't conducted another nuclear test. The bad news is that North Korea continues to build and now conceal, based on some new satellite imagery, we've seen that they're starting to conceal uh, places where we think they're hiding their nuclear stockpile. So look, this whole policy area feels like Groundhog Day to me, right? Like same problems, same people, same, you know, conversations with the same allies. How do you think the U.S. can break this cycle here with North Korea so that we've avoided another four years of like stern statements from the U.S., sanctions that that result in, you know, that hurt the people of North Korea. But at the end of the day, the North has more nukes and more missiles. Trump's diplomacy, it failed miserably, but at least he tried something new. Like, do you have a, any, a pitch for them here on a path forward? Yeah, I actually think that um, look, recognizing that this is nobody has succeeded at this, and everything therefore is is a long shot. I think the the path forward is to try to to get small steps in the right direction. You know, um, for a long time, you know, under uh, you know, Clinton, Bush, Obama, it was like we don't accept North Korea having nuclear weapons, uh, and that's the right thing. You don't want to accept that they cheated their way to get them. Um, but that was getting us nowhere. And then Trump tries this kind of big bang approach, right, where we're going to make friends with them, but that didn't get us anywhere either. I, I think just kind of like very intricate, hard-headed diplomacy that works with South Korea hand in glove that doesn't acknowledge the legitimacy of the North's nuclear weapons, but just does say that, you know, while our goal is, you know, denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, you know, can we have small reversals of North Korea's program in certain areas in exchange for certain kinds of sanction relief, just to kind of start moving this in the in the right direction? <laughs> You know, um, and and to stop the kind of the, the more nuclear weapons they have, the greater the proliferation risk, the greater the risk that that they can put it on an ICBM that could reach the U.S. Right, which is a huge security interest for us. So I, I'd like to see them try to pursue diplomacy that that just at least tries to claw back in the right direction of you know certain parts of their North Korean program moving in reverse instead of you know, moving inexorably forward. Here, the one thing I would noticed, and uh, some other people notice this, is that. The Biden people were using the phrase the denuclearization of North Korea uh, when they were hmm. speaking publicly about what they wanted. It was unusual because, you know, the formulation that, you know, you put your name on a bunch of times and me too has always been the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Right, um, right. So it's a more hawkish um frame. Um and obviously we don't support South Korea getting nuclear weapons, so I don't know exactly what accounts oh. for it. Um but again, it may be they're trying to reassure the South Koreans and Japan and but like, you know, a lot of things in the early Biden team, it's 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 a pretty hawkish. Uh, I'd like to hear them explain why the change, I guess, uh, because uh, it's something that, you know, just a whole bunch of people like me noticed without much explanation. Yeah. Also, not a not a, a topic where, uh, you know, little phrasing changes like that go unnoticed or don't have a lot of meaning. Um, one 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 loop worth closing here, Ben, is, you know, you and I talked a million times 
about how Trump would try to threaten and bully allies like South Korea to pay the U.S. more to cover the cost of U.S. military presences in places like the Korean Peninsula. And it got really ugly. There was at one point Trump reportedly demanded that South Korea pay the U.S. up to five times the amount we were getting paid for, for our troop installation in, in South Korea. It's like 27,500 troops, I think. But over the weekend, the U.S. and South Korea cut a five-year deal that will increase payments uh, next year by 14% above the deals Trump negotiated in 2019, in 2020. So I guess uh, Biden read art of the deal also, and it said, don't be an asshole to your allies and you will get a better outcome. Yeah, it just shows sometimes in life, particularly with your friends, right? Being an asshole to your friend it usually doesn't get you as far as being uh, nice to your friend. I, I, I think more broadly, like the success of this trip, right, is that this is not subtle. It's like the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense going together on the first overseas trip, which you know normally would be to Europe or to you know uh, North America, to to South Korea and Japan, who are both allies who you know were treated poorly to say the least under Trump, but also obviously a critical part of any long-term U.S. strategy towards Asia or towards China, right? In terms of countering China containing China's ambitions to some extent. So they're not being subtle in, in the prioritization of the Asia Pacific and the prioritization of democratic allies. And and I think that's to the good. Um, and, and look, this isn't a new idea. Like the Obama you know, administration famously you know, pivoted to Asia, rebalanced Asia. Um, but, but I think people should take note that, that they're planting a flag in Asia, first of all, and in South Korea and Japan specifically, um, you know, and that message won't be lost on the Chinese. Um, I, I imagine China is even more so the audience that's intended uh, versus North Korea, even if North Korea smelled something. Well, so and you flag this. So one other flag that's being planted is so the U.S. Uh, and Chinese officials are going to meet on Thursday in Alaska. According to Politico, one of the top agenda items is Taiwan. U.S. military officials are reportedly just increasingly concerned that China might invade Taiwan and create a new you know, pressure point for the U.S. to respond to something militarily. Taiwanese officials were understandably concerned during the Trump administration and about his commitment to their security when he reportedly told a Republican senator back in 2019, Taiwan is like two feet from China. We are 8,000 miles away. If they evade, there isn't a fucking thing we can do about it, end quote. Uh, ben, is he wrong? Like, what do you think Biden's team can or should do to, to show their commitment to Taiwan security, to brush China back a bit? Is that possible at this point? I think this is a huge issue that the world's going to have to watch very carefully because there are very few places where there could be a real large-scale conventional war in the world, and Taiwan is one of them, right? Um, and, and why do I say that? Like, first of all, you know, the Taiwanese, like, are, the Taiwanese were always split between you know, wanting to have closer ties to mainland China and wanting to potentially be independent. The Hong Kong protests, I think, changed this whole calculation because the people in Taiwan saw Hong Kong just get swallowed up, right? And the promise that Hong Kong got was one country, two systems. Well, that would be the promise under which Taiwan would come into a union with the People's Republic of China. And and who's going to take that deal after watching what happened in Hong Kong? So there's an increasing likelihood that Taiwan could move in the direction of independence. You have an increasingly assertive, if not belligerent leader in China and Xi Jinping building up his military. Um, you have a U.S. which has longstanding defense ties with Taiwan. We had, It's not a security guarantee, but there's been this kind of implicit unspoken thing that 
you know, we are fortifying them. We sell them arms. We have right. defense relations because grave concern. We don't want them to be invaded and taken over by China. Um, and so this this bears watching. And when I saw that, it's not usual for U.S. officials to kind of background that we're worried about an invasion of Taiwan. I, I didn't necessarily think that means that 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 invasion is imminent. I took it more as the U.S. and the Biden team kind of signaling, hey, we're worried about this generally. You know, the issue of Taiwan is going to be, you know, we're going to these talks with the Chinese, like this issue of Taiwan is going to be more prevalent and prominent and more of a, probably a source of tension in our relationship. And so that, that I think, bears real watching here. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to Uganda and just do a quick update, uh, because a couple weeks back, we were lucky to have a guy named uh, Bobby Wine on the show. He is a 39-year-old Ugandan musician turned politician who is the leader of the Ugandan opposition movement. Uh, Bobby Wine and, and a lot of the country, the citizens of Uganda, are frustrated with President uh, Museveni, who is beginning his sixth term as the president of Uganda, comes after several disputed elections. Frankly, he's the leader of a military dictatorship at this point. On Monday, Bobby Wine said that he and several members of parliament and some activists attended or led a protest against, quote, the abduction, torture, and murder of his supporters, end quote. And of course, they were arrested protesting the arrest of their supporters. So the good news is that Bobby Wine and those with him uh, at this protest on Monday were released, but hundreds of Ugandans are being held in military detention. So I just wanted to flag this story for listeners because, you know, very Notably, in our interview, Bobby was clear that one of the things he thinks keeps him safe is continued international media attention to Uganda and to his story. So flagging that one for everybody. Yeah, no, keep an eye on it. And like these people are showing enormous courage. And and look, you know, and this will apply to you know Myanmar if we talk about that. Like some of these movements don't succeed the first time around, you know. But if you look at this, if you look at how old Museveni is and how old Bobby Wine is and how old Bobby Wine supporters are, they're fighting for democracy right now. Hopefully they win it. Um, but they're laying the groundwork to, to to win the fight at some point, you know, and, and, and you would like to see Bobby Wine stay free in that struggle. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Ben, uh, you know, I, I've been reading about the protests in, in Myanmar from over the weekend. There's some really scary reports that you know, half a dozen people at least were just murdered by the police and by military forces in response. Is there anything you're seeing sort of jump out of, of the situation there? Anything hopeful, anything dire, any, anything the U.S. government should be doing? I, well, the hopeful thing is this civil disobedience movement is much broader and deeper than, than anything we've seen um, in Myanmar to date. And it's not just support Fong Sang Suu Kyi. It is that next generation of people getting involved, like we've talked about. The ter- tragic news is that the military has clearly calculated that they they they're pivoting to full crackdown, and they're using live fire ammunition to break up protest. They're killing dozens of people and, and hoping that that sends a message. It's not worth protesting because you might get shot. I'll say anecdotally, Tommy, I have friends in in Myanmar, many of whom are activists, who you know were protesting for the first few weeks. Some still are, but increasingly, I'm hearing from them. I'm getting visited by the security services. The security oh, no. services are outside my door. Um, there's, you can kind of feel that, you know, uh, the, the wall is closing in, if you will, um, on this movement. And as with Bobby Wine, like you said, like they care about the world. Watch any image of a protest in Myanmar and you see English signs. That's yeah. not because they all speak English. That's because the, yep. the audience is the international media and the rest of the world. And they find solidarity and motivation in, in, in that support. But they also feel like, 
it, the only potential accountability for the military through international justice, through international sanctions, through international pressure is from that attention. So um, I think the U.S. just needs to stay focused on it, not drift. And one of the things I'd like to see you ask concretely, when they sit down with China, that this be on the uh, agenda, because I think the Chinese mm-hmm. are tacitly supporting what the Burmese military is doing. We tend to not raise this, you know, it's far down the list of other things. But I think if we care about human rights, um, we should be you know, pressuring the Chinese about this because the Chinese have a lot of economic interest in Myanmar. And, and by the way, the case I'd make to them is that if this entire place just implodes and collapses because the economy collapses and there's like a de facto civil war, it's not in anybody's interest either. So speaking of solidarity for for protest movements and protesters, let's talk about two very important debates that are happening right now about women's rights and women's safety. The first is in the UK, uh, where last month a 33-year-old woman named Sarah Everard was abducted and murdered by an off-duty police officer. And it sparked this broader conversation about women's safety in Britain. Sarah was just walking home at like nine o'clock at night to her flat in, in London when she was taken. And it was just this horrifying story. And over the weekend, there was a vigil for Everard in London. And people around the world were horrified and furious when yeah. images started to emerge of police arresting these women who are just attending a vigil. And then on Monday, the British Parliament started debating legislation that could mandate prison sentences of up to 10 years for protesters. So that's fucked. Uh, And then in Australia, last month, a woman named Brittany Higgins came forward to tell her story about being raped by a colleague inside Australia's parliament building when she was serving uh, as an aide to the Australian defense minister. That sparked a conversation in Australia about misogyny in government, specifically in Prime Minister Scott Morrison's conservative coalition, and really shockingly high levels of sexual assault uh, in Australia writ large. So Ben, you know, uh, again, in this situation, it is so frustrating and infuriating to see governments failing these women, often compounding the problem, often so far behind in, in like not advancing solutions, but making it harder for people to fight for their rights. So I wanted to, to raise these these two stories and, you know, basically just show solidarity from, you know, the show to people in the streets who are protesting. Yeah. And, and everybody should check out the videos of the British police breaking up that vigil because it, it's like Horrible. totally horrifying. What um, are you thinking? Just kind of young women peacefully uh, protesting violence against women, you know, um, and By a cop. I, I think to, to yeah. And, 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 and just to. To reiterate your, your solidarity point, I mean, we've seen in this country, right, when Black Lives Matter started, it was this kind of, it was treated as kind of a fringe movement in some ways. And it failed in some ways and, and, and succeeded in others. It succeeded in getting like a wholesale reckoning for the Ferguson Police Department, right? Um, but, but it failed in some of its other objectives. But over time, because that movement sustained itself, now a lot of its positions are mainstreamed and they've shifted the discourse on these things. And and hopefully Joe Biden is signing serious police reforms that will still not be enough to a, a lot of activists who are pushing. And, and I think the message there is if you have this kind of global solidarity among different movements and those movements are sustained, you may not see the results you want in the British parliament today, but you're much more likely to see them in three years or five years. So these are long-term fights um, and we shouldn't be deterred by short-term setbacks or short-term kind of horrible <laughs> images. Um, those should resolve us to kind of connect these movements around the world uh, and carry them forward. 
Yeah, and in fact, you know, sometimes those short-term setbacks, like the images of the cops breaking up that vigil, uh, can spark yeah. a huge advance. So let's hope that's what happened here. Uh, two more issues. This one, you know, is something you're hearing about a lot lately, which is the number of migrants arriving at the southern border. So that number has drastically increased, especially unaccompanied minor children. It's been increasing since last year. And at this point, um, the number of individuals arriving is starting to overwhelm the government's capacity to safely house these individuals, especially the children during a pandemic. By law, the U.S. government has 72 hours to move unaccompanied minors out of Customs and Border Protection facilities into foster homes or the custody of a, a vetted sponsor, like a family member. But that's not always happening because they, they're overwhelmed, seemingly. Um Biden's team is scrambling to do a bunch of stuff. They're trying to open up beds. They're trying to increase their capacity to house these kids. They're also trying to unwind Trump's immigration policies while also simultaneously sending a message internationally that is designed to dissuade migrants from traveling north in this moment. So that's obviously very, very complicated and hard to do all at once. Uh, Republicans have already started blaming Biden for the influx of asylum seekers. That insufferable moron, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the yeah. congressman from yeah. California, you, do you see him at the border? Yeah. He, started, he did the thing they always do, which is they claim that terrorists are crossing into the country, yeah, even yeah. though there's literally Kids. no evidence yeah. that's ever happened, right? Yeah. And McCarthy said people are coming from Yemen, Iran, and Sri Lanka. Uh, I believe he meant Sri Lanka, yeah. which is a country and not a, a dude just, named Mr. Lanka. Just proving that he's also an idiot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> look, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's Mr. Lanka. Yeah. Uh, so look, you know, Democrats are pushing Biden to move faster, understandably. But Ben, last week, you know, Biden's uh, White House coordinator for the southern border, Roberta Jacobson, a really accomplished diplomat, outlined this plan to provide $4 billion in aid to Central American countries that will also agree to fight corruption. The idea being make life better in you know, El Salvador, Honduras, et cetera, so that people don't want to leave those countries. But that approach is, is a long game approach. What do you think Biden should do here, right? Because he's getting pushed to acknowledge that this is quote unquote a crisis, which feels like a bit of a political trap because I don't know that policy solutions exist to solve the problem at crisis speed, like whether or not you acknowledge it. But what do you what do you think? You should yeah, do? I, I think that the, the, the political discourse around this is particularly dumb. Um, I mean, in the, <laughs> you know, because it, it's treated as like this, like Washington, you know, who whose fault is it? Who gets credit or, you know, wh yeah. what is Kevin McCarthy going to with the midterm elections? Right. Which aren't for a year and a half. And I get that that's why it's covered. But like this is like a really complicated, you know, policy challenge with enormous human uh, elements and stake here. And, and at the end of the day, they're going to have to align a whole bunch of pieces, right? What is the support that we're providing in terms of assistance to Central America that might improve circumstances there so there's not these kinds of flows? What is very importantly, the messaging that we are doing in Central America to kind of warn people off these smuggling networks and to, to make clear to them that just arriving at the border is not a, a guarantee that you're going to get into the United States. What are the facilities that are available to particularly unaccompanied children that reach the border? How do we speed up the asylum process um, so that we can adjudicate claims more effectively? Like, I, I'm sympathetic to the administration here that that solving that complex piece of business. Oh, by the way, when you're also trying to untangle all these Trump era regulations, um, that's going to take some time. Um, I think, though, to give themselves that time, they're probably going to have to speak more clearly 
about what the whole end game is here in the in the coming weeks. They have to tell people this is where we're trying to get to. You know, this is going to be you know the different elements of our policy and how they fit together. Um, because because right now there's a bit of a vacuum in kind of understanding what they're aiming for, uh, and that's allowing the Kevin McCarthy's of the world to turn this into some DC political you know competition of narratives, which it's always going to have a component of that, but. But but so for me, if you're in a circumstance and you know this time, Ben, as well as me, like if you're not done yet in cooking the policy, sometimes you have to buy yourself time by telling people what the end result is going to be, you know, and I think that's yeah. the solution here. Man, the the reporters pressing Jen on whether it's a crisis just reminded me of all the times we yeah. were told to like say radical Islamic terror or these like lexical definitions around word choice that just that mean nothing ultimately. It's like, yeah, look, Jen saying crisis doesn't change what's happening. And it's, it, by the way, the reason it's not a crisis is this happens periodically at the border. You know, this, unfortunately, the tragedy is it's not totally, I mean, the numbers are particularly It's like an high. annual thing. Yeah, yeah, the numbers go up a lot. And, you know, and I'll tell you, we've underfunded a lot of things. You know, we don't, have enough money for asylum judges to process the claims, right? Like we don't have enough money to figure out, you know, how to house people in a humane way, um, in part because we've been pouring all this money into border security and enforcement, including under the Obama years. And so there's a lot more money in the government that goes towards that than goes towards dealing with the human beings uh, who are affected by this. So hopefully they can change that. But that's in their, you know, that takes budgets too. This takes time, you know. Yeah, it's going to take some time. Uh, okay, last segment before the interview is, uh, you know, look, I, I, I teased it. It's an evergreen segment uh, called Why Tucker Carlson is a Dick. I guess we could do this five days a week. So last week on his show, Tucker put up a, a photo of a U.S. military flight suit designed for pregnant women. Uh, by the way, it was designed during the Trump administration. And then he went on some rants about how the U.S. military is getting more feminine and about how gender roles are being erased. You know, like this is, this is the new Republican thing, right? Yeah. Just complain about gender. The response was, it was swift and it was brutal on Tucker. Uh, countless members of the military took to social media to let him know that he's a moron. Women from all branches of the military posted about how they have served in combat zones and they've raised families at the same time. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, herself a, a wounded combat veteran, I think put it most succinctly when she tweeted, fuck Tucker Carlson. While he was practicing his two-step, America's female warriors were hunting down Al-Qaeda, improving the strength of America's women, end quote. Uh, and she included a quick video of Tucker in like a frilly shirt, like like clicking his uh, fingers when he was on Dancing with the Stars. So, you know, not the best look for Tucker. Anyway, yeah. it's fun to see Tucker get roasted, right? I actually think he inadvertently kicked off a, a, a good and important conversation about the critical role that women play in the U.S. military. We should be talking about their uh, the great work that women do in the U.S. military more. More generally, Ben, tell me if I'm overthinking this. I do worry that, like, over the last few months, with Trump gone from Twitter and social media generally, Tucker has become the troller-in-chief, yeah, yeah. right? There, there's a whole group of well-meaning, good people who, like, capture, share, and amplify almost everything Tucker does every night, which is exactly what he wants to happen. He wants outrage ratings, right? He yeah. wants libs mad at him. I don't know that this is a worldo problem as much as a, you know, me spending too much time on Twitter and worried about disinformation and right wing propaganda getting amplified problem. But, you know, it is something I think about a lot. No, t t and t Tucker Carlson, like Sean Hannity is this kind of buffoonish guy who just takes his cues from other people, really like Tucker Carlson 
there's a malevolence there um, that is alarming. Um, and, and and I guess the world angle I, that occurred to me when I saw General Austin and the DOD respond so swiftly, yes, it's a, an important opportunity for them to highlight the tens of thousands of women who served in the U.S. military since 9-11, you know, in increasing roles, including in combat. And we lifted restrictions on women in combat in the Obama administration, the increasing uh, leadership role that women play, including the two four stars that we talked about. But I think they responded swiftly, too, because Tucker's messing with the cohesion of the military. I mean, hmm. let's be honest here. Like, I've traveled to a lot of military bases. Guess what news station is usually on in U.S. military? Yeah. It's Fox News, right? They're yeah. clearly, you know, probably mostly white men in the U.S. military who kind of agree with Tucker Carlson. And when he stirs the pot like this, he's literally probably causing you know, lack of cohesion in like units and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. people deployed in places like Afghanistan and, and for the military to react like this, it tells me that they were worried. And look, we, they themselves have said, they also think they have an extremism problem uh, in the military. Why wouldn't they like the <laughs> rest of America does. So uh, he's playing with real fire here, right. By just taking his culture war into the, the institution that fights real wars and stirring that pot you know, that's going to cause problems down to like the unit level here because, you know, you're going to have some women in the in a unit and some Tucker you know, viewers in the unit. And I, th- it's good that the military knocked that garbage down. I'd like to see them keep doing that. They can't help being in the circumstance of an America that is dealing with, with this nonsense. And so they, they, they should stand up for what's right. Uh, Tucker, we all need to be a little more worried about Tucker. I think so. He's I think you're right. He's not just a he's a smart guy. He's a he's a very good writer, right? He is he's intelligent enough for this to not be just an act. It is it is malevolent. Uh he's a real demagogue. He worries me a lot. I he, I worry about him running for office, frankly. I mean, Donald Trump has showed us that there's no real limit in terms of what a demagogue can do in this country. Yeah, and and look, you know, we've joked right about how Tom Cotton and Mike Pompeo like you know, they have no charisma. So why would they be True. able to pick up the Trumpist man- uh, mantle? But like Tucker Carlson has some charisma, and uh, yeah, he's no dummy, and a platform, and he's got the biggest platform in cable news, except you know. And so, you know, this is this is not just a, <laughs> a joke, you know. Like a, I share your worry about this sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, when we come back, we will have Ben's interview about the future of the Labor Party in Israel. So stick around for that. I'm very pleased to be joined now by Mehrav Michaeli, who is the chair of the Labor Party in Israel. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Good evening. I mean, good day. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good Good. Good evening where you are. Um, so I, I wanted to start, uh, you know, you became the, the leader of the Labor Party a few months ago. Um, and, you know, for our listeners who don't follow Israeli politics closely, the Labor Party, you know, has had you know, this huge history, uh, iconic prime ministers, but has been in the political wilderness um, for much of the last uh, decade or two. Um, what was the state of the party, you know, from your perspective when, when you took over? And, and what was the state of the broader Israeli left when you took, took over this position of leadership? So first of all, I'm the chair of labor for only few, a few weeks. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yes, it's it's really quite um, incredible because uh, I was um, engaged in this fight for holding an election, something that was supposed to be given. 
uh, and that is written in the party's constitution. And it was a, a long uh, fight that went all the way to the Supreme Court in, in which I, against all odds and everyone's expectations, uh, I won. And then we held the primaries and it was already in the midst of the campaign. I mean, everybody else were like already deep into the campaign. As, and then I had uh, a week and a half before the closing of the lists, actually. So I held another primaries for the list. And here we are in, I don't know, what, like three or four weeks of campaign. That's all. Uh, I found, I mean, I didn't find, I was part of the party ever since uh, 2012. I came to the primaries in 2012. And the, the party then uh, was already recuperating from another crisis that, Eud Barak uh, caused when he, in 2009, joined Netanyahu, um, yeah. of course, um, against all of his promises in the past, and then broke labor into half, leaving half of it inside the government and the other half uh, started to rebuild itself. And then I came in, and then we had yet another opportunity with Buzi Herzog as chair yeah. who went with Tzipi Livni, the Zionist camp. We had 24 mandates. It was already almost, we were almost there. And then the crash. Yeah. And then, anyway, so when I came into the party after having um, Amir Peretz and uh, Itzik Shmuli, the last leaders, uh, joining Netanyahu's government again, despite and yeah. against really repeating, repeating convictions that they wouldn't, the party was very, very close to being erased completely. It was below 1% in the polls, um, yeah. below 1%. And nobody, I mean, the, the situation was so dire that no one, I mean, they hardly even covered my fight for primaries and such because they they said, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work anyway. It's dead already. It's not revivable. So there's no point yeah. in even covering the fight for it. Uh, thankfully, I was proven right and they were proven wrong. Uh, let's see. I mean, we're still sort of not out of the woods, I would say, but we are on six or between six and seven mandates in the polls right now, um, re relatively steady. Labor was the leader of the central left camp in Israel, as you said, yeah. the, the history and the prime ministers, uh, but History in Israel changed in uh, 1993 when Benjamin Netanyahu was elected uh, chair of Likud and became the chair of the opposition and started his campaign of incitement and delegitimization against Itzhak Rabin, prime minister of labor, against the Oslo Accord, against the left, against peace, against the Arabs, against democracy. And this is a campaign that's been going on ever since then. The things that we are dealing with now are the same that started then. It's the narrative that Netanyahu specifically and the right in general are good for the Jews and that the left is good for the Arabs at the Jews' expense. And the other thing was that the next sort of level was that saying that the leftists have forgotten what it means to be Jewish meaning it's no wonder that they prefer the Arabs because their Jewishness is fluid. This is what we've been dealing with ever since. Now, I think Americans, after four years of uh, Donald Trump as president, 
can relate to what we've been living with, only we've been living it with it ever since yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 93 and now 12 years in a row. And just imagine, just think that you, sh- that you were to live under Donald Trump for 12 years in a row. What, what that would have yeah. done to your society, to your media. And Israel is smaller and more centralized and we have less pluralism in the media. So the hold that Netanyahu has over the public sphere in Israel is, is really huge. And even so, one needs to say very clearly Israel is not Netanyahu. There is a clear differentiation between him personally, the, the whatever agenda that he has, and the majority of Israelis, the majority of Israelis, and you see that in the, uh, for instance, the Institution for uh, Democracy in Israel, the majority of Israel believe in equality. They want pluralism. They want... Um, freedom of religion, a welfare state, and more than anything, even after 28 years of incitement, there is a tiny majority for the two-state solution. The only thing they do not have now is a political tool with the political power to turn all of that into their day-to-day reality. Well, and I've been impressed, um, you know, it, it, like you said, it looked like labor was going to be shut out of the Knesset altogether. And, and now it seems like you've turned that around and at least have some momentum here. And one of the ways I've noticed you've done that is, is by bringing your background as a feminist into, into your, your program for the party. How central is that? And is there a way um, to kind of galvanize some of the trends we've seen in other parts of the world where you've seen women leaders um, essentially... revitalize the center left I mean how, how do you incorporate your, your your background as a feminist into your your party chairmanship well first I think I there are two things one is that we actually have programs that relate to the family that relate to violence against women that um, sort of deal with uh, issues okay but it's more than that because I am I Um, you know, I've, I mean, in politics only for eight years, but I had a very, very long public career before that. I was in the media, in primetime television and radio um, ever since I was 19 uh, years old. And, and for the 20 years prior to my getting into formal politics, I was engaged heavily in public politics. Uh, Uh, activism for women's rights, minority rights, peace, workers' rights, etc. So like in Israel, I am kind of the synonym for feminism. I'm, it's, it's like I don't have to say anything about the issues. People know. <laughs> no, seriously. So it's like yeah. everything I say is from this kind of prism. It's, it's true when I speak about Iran or Jordan or the Palestinians or about economy or about whatever. It's like it's sort of embedded in it. It's really there's no need to mention it. So you know it's it's kind of nice that so much work for so long is is yeah. somehow yeah, yeah. off. Yeah, you know we'll, we'll get to the uh, u s. relationship and the Palestinians in a second here, but from your sense is now you know leading a party into an election, um, what are what are the issues that Israelis are voting on and 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 what is drawing them to to labor and and what is You know, for Americans, you know, we have an uh, audience all over the world who, who may not be following it day to day. 
how would you describe the issues that are driving this campaign? I think it's um, it's a very tricky question, you know. Uh, one would think it would be coronavirus and the failure, the really overwhelming failure of Netanyahu to deal with it. We have 6,000 dead, which is really, it's just, it's horrible because there was no reason on earth we should have had uh, so many dead. It's a small country. It's very centralized. It could have been yeah. handled so much better. Uh, and of course, the economy. So I think the, the number one thing that really bothers people is the economy and the way the fact that uh, almost a million people lost their jobs and that there's this insecurity, this um, economical financial insecurity. But do people vote on that? No, still a majority votes on yeah. BB, yes or no. Are you with or for BB or against BB? And a lot of the center-left voters are willing to sacrifice many of their values and the things that they want to see and their day-to-day -day worries just in to be able to replace Netanyahu. So since the center-left camp is so crushed, politically speaking, people yeah. will vote to Gidon Sao, who's an extreme right-wing politician, or to... Um, Benny Gantz, who have already who has already joined Netanyahu, but they somehow believe he will not join him again. So, yeah. So it's all scattered and fractioned, and it's really difficult to try and anticipate what the outcome of the election uh, might be. Well, I, and I want to. This has been interesting for me to watch from the outside because. Um, you know, I remember Barack Obama saying to me once, you know, we'd get frustrated with Netanyahu. And I said something like, you know, the, he's not building a legacy. And he's like, yes, he has. His legacy is, you know, breaking apart the Israeli left. Um, and and actually that was resonant because he said that on the way to Shimon Peres's, you know funeral where Obama was going to give the eulogy. Um, but what, what, when I watch this from the outside, you've seen Benny Gantz go in to the government. You've seen Zippy Livni go into the government. You've seen Lapid go into the government. You've seen Ehud Barak go into the government. Th this keeps happening over and over again, where Netanyahu looks like he's about to be voted out, and then he manages to take you know hard right coalition and peel off somebody from the center. Why is it so hard <laughs> to, to um, given that he does not win majorities, right? I mean, this is not someone who's winning you know in, in fifty plus percent. Why has it been so hard to remove Netanyahu, and and why what what is your case for why he needs to be removed? Why even if you know there's another center right figure, Israel just needs to move beyond this Netanyahu era. So first and foremost, when you asked me what uh, what draws people to labor today, one of the reasons is that I did not join Netanyahu. I stayed yeah. out even when um, the rest of my party went in. I stayed outside with the risk of it's, it was a, a, a genuine risk for my political career because they could have blocked me in many ways. And still I was I, I didn't even hesitate because what you have just described, I am so frustrated. I keep this, telling this to people in Israel. But the convention here is that Bibi is like this magician, you know, who managed yeah, to win yeah. over the people. And I keep telling people, no, he does not win over the people. He has a quarter, he had at all times the maximum of a quarter of the Knesset that who votes for him personally. 
the rest okay yeah. so maybe you can argue that even a little bit of a little bit less of a half are voting for him even if they are doing it through other parties but yes you are so correct and most of israelis do not get that the only reasons why netanyahu had governments ever since 2009 is thanks to votes of the center left camp either through their leaders as you said Ehud Barak Yair Lapid um and Benny Gantz or through uh voters who voted for uh, uh, for instance in 2015 to Kahlon who they yeah. thought you know you know he's like we, in Hebrew the word is khavrati he's like social okay he he thinks about social issues um and people don't realize the fact that they have to build a political power and not to give their political power to the other side is i think it stems from the fact that the center left camp in israel ever since the assassination of itzhak rabin is uh, behaving like any other victim of violence uh, you know how a victim this you see feminism yeah yeah when you were good at that uh What happens is that you take in the blame and the shame that is inflicted on you constantly, and you become certain that what the oppressor is saying about you is true, and you are trying to constantly please and prove that it is not true. It's not true all the horror, but you are not a traitor. You are not a self-hating Israeli, whatever. You are not a non, not good enough Jew, um, etc. And and you. You believe that if you only are nicer and if you are only something, I don't know, doesn't matter, then yeah. everything will be okay. And I think uh, there was um, th- there's a loss of self-confidence and identity. Mm-hmm. and there's a, the, we lost the ability to see ourselves as the government. So the, mm-hmm. the, the concept of influencing from within, became dominant it's like uh, you don't have any um it, it became like a really such a cliche that you don't have any influence in the opposition what will you do in the opposition it's a waste of time you better influence from the from the inside and there was an addiction to this concept and somehow people fail to see what you from the outside have described so accurately And what I have been trying to tell sometimes my chairs, okay? This goes for uh, when Bijri Herzog went to the uh, negotiation, when he negotiation, negotiated with Netanyahu on a unity government, so-called, which, yeah. which brought labor down, even though we stayed outside, but we paid all the prices of as if we were in the government. Yeah. And then Amir Peretz, when I tried to convince him not to go in. So... So now we came to a point where you don't have a rival. Right now in Israel, there's only one ruling party, which makes it a very fragile democracy, to say the least. And this is why I'm so invested in rebuilding labor as the ruling party for the center-left. It will take time. It's a process. But if we don't start doing it, then it will never happen. And, and the Palestinian issue, obviously, uh, you mentioned that there's still, you know, uh, support for two states, but there's also a sense uh, that, you know, that's impossible. Sure. Bibi is kind of suffocated, um, you know, very skillfully in the bomb years. You used, you know, an, an, an endless peace process that led nowhere um, uh, to essentially create an impression, I think, that this is just not going to happen. And, and meanwhile, settlements continue to. And, and you have you know this kind of brink of annexation 
what, what is the path back to, I mean, it, you know, do you still believe in two states and, and what is the path back to some glimmer that that could actually happen? Um, you know, given the fact that, you know, as you said, it's not the domination selection by any stretch, but security is always in the backdrop in terms of how, how Israelis are looking at things. Um, what, what, what next for people who actually want to see uh, Israel as a secure Jewish democratic state next to a, a sovereign Palestinian state? Well, not only me, but labor, uh, first of all, labor with me as chair. And one of the things that I constantly say is that uh, I'm taking a labor back to the Rabin path, to its Hak Rabin mm. path, who realized that in order to um, sustain itself, in order to ensure its existence and its security, um, it's a, a primary Israeli interest to figure out a solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and to have a border. I believe in a peaceful border. So we believe in finding a way to uh, find a solution for the conflict, preferably, and this is my take, and I was a supporter of the two-state solution forever before I came to the Knesset. Uh, so we believe in a, a regional sort of accord of some sort. Now, mm. what to answer your question, what we need in order to uh, get back to this path is a political will in the Israeli prime minister's chair. This is the number one thing that is required. This is so obvious. Because where there's a will, there will be a way. And there have been a number of ways that have been explored in the past. And the fact that it did not succeed does not mean that it cannot succeed. And especially not if you bring in um, major partners, not only Egypt and Jordan, who I uh, see as... Uh, extremely important partners, but also now we have countries from the states from the Abraham Accords. I would have preferred that we would have had, you know, the whole deal of the uh, Arab, um, uh, the Arab League Peace Initiative, but it's still in this way or another way can certainly be on the table. So there's huge potential there to leverage all these uh, relationships into a new way with the Palestinians, which should be done, but it cannot be done without a political will in the primaries, uh, prime minister's chair in Israel. So the, this is the number one thing to work on. It's interesting, you know, because I was going to ask you about the U.S. relationship, and it actually ties into the Abraham Accords in a way, in the sense that uh, you mentioned at the very beginning that Israel and Netanyahu are not one and the same. And one of the concerns I've had with U.S. policy for a long time particularly under Trump, but even under Obama too, is that, um, you know, in supporting Netanyahu and his priorities, um, it was not necessarily always didn't feel like the best thing for Israel because it put a two-stage solution further away. But it also, as you said, Israel's democracy was kind of eroding before our eyes. And even with the Abraham Accords, which, you know, obviously the normalization of relations with additional Arab states is, is positive, but, but in doing that without bringing the Palestinians into it, um, you know, the Arab states kind of contributed to a sense that the Palestinians are, are, are out of the picture. The question I want to ask about the U.S. is, what is a way for the U.S. to be supportive of Israel, but not always giving Netanyahu essentially a blank check? You know, how do you strike this balance between, you know, what would you like to see the U.S. do to have a, I'd say, more mature relationship where it's not 
just channeled through this one person, Bibi Netanyahu, but it's about, you know, interest and shared values, which would suggest a, a meaningful effort to pursue peace, a meaningful effort to promote democracy in both our countries, by the way, the, the U.S. has our own de- democratic problems. How would you advise the U.S. Uh, you know, to have a, a healthier relationship here uh, going forward? Hmm. Well, I see um, the complications, but I would um, suggest that the administration or, uh, you know, whatever formal uh, representatives uh, meet not only with Netanyahu, but also with um, the other side of the map, because maybe in order to um, make it clear that they realize that in Israel, there are two sort of Israels even, I would say, and that mm-hmm. that they acknowledge not only Netanyahu, given that his legitimacy is so um, not accepted, he's not really um, acceptable as legit it's for so many Israelis. I understand that it's in a formal sort of way, it's problematic. I mean, governments deal with governments, obviously. So, but I think this is the most effective way to also, um, first of all, to really um, help um, build back the the camp that believes in democracy and equality and peace and that has these shared values. And also to sort of signal to Israelis that really Netanyahu is not the only one that can speak to, because he managed, even though the relationship with the Democratic Party, he has compromised it so terribly and has caused so much damage for the average Israeli, it's very hard to see, obviously, because at the end of the day, he's the prime minister, he deals with, you know, the the US. So... I think if he if people realize that he's not it's not only about him because what he constantly says is um, who else but me can you know talk to speak to the American president who else but me can deal with Iran who and etc. So maybe if they see that well you know others can too, then of course this make a difference. No, it's an interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting and important point because he's managed to equate Israel and himself, not just in Israel, but very much in the U.S. The last question for you is: um, as we approach the election here, what, um, how would you, what, what is a successful outcome for you? Uh, what, what, what should we be looking for as a as a as a hopeful scenario? This is election number four <laughs> um, in in r- rapid succession. Um, but 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 what what would you like to wake up the day after the election and and see as a as a possible political path for both labor and and for Israel generally? Well, the the golden question is in this um, election again is will Netanyahu manage to get sixty one mandates uh, for a government which will no doubtly be the most dangerous that he has had so far. Or will there be 61 mandates to replace Netanyahu? This is a very big question because right now Naftali Bennett has not, I mean, he will, you know, he will go with Netanyahu if he thinks that um, it suits him. Uh, He doesn't even uh, hide it. So it's really a very big question. But if this thing happens that we have 61 or more mandates to replace Netanyahu, 
uh, then it's crucial that labor is as big as possible in this uh, puzzle because then we will have the ability to influence uh, the agenda of this weird, very, very weird coalition that will be created. <laughs> created. Um, so for me, the most important thing is really uh, getting the larger number of mandates that I possibly can, in, because I see this as a phase, as a, a phase to that, uh, as a first step in rebuilding a genuine party with real values, the values that we believe in, and turn it back into a political power that can not too lo- not in too long uh, take over and be the government and start rehabilitating Israel, taking it back to the Zionist vision, which speaks about a home for the Jewish people, but with equality and with a just society and with security that is obtained by striving for peace. Well, look, uh, it was great talking to you. Uh, that's uh, a great note to end on. We really wish you the best. I, I, it'd be so great for uh, the health of Israeli democracy in, in the world. And I think the U.S.-Israel relationship to have that kind of strong, confident center left um, for, for so many reasons. So we wish you the best in this election, but also with the, the maybe even you know more important project of, of revitalizing labor and 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 this uh, extraordinary tradition of, uh, you know, uh, a center left in Israel that it stands up for equality. So um, thank, thanks so much for joining us and good luck. Thank you, Ben. Uh, thanks to Mariah for joining the show. Uh, thanks to uh, the crew at Take Line, fantastic new podcast for helping us fill out our brackets. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Jason. And uh, that's it for this week. Thanks, Jeremy Lin, for one of the most exciting two weeks of my life. But that was a long time ago. Lynn Sanity is the coolest couple weeks, like one of the most unique, weird, interesting moments in in sports. The whole city went completely berserk and this guy like couldn't miss, you know? Has a player ever gone off like that for a more defined period of time? No, no player has gone off that far above his own abilities. And, and, and uh, somebody should make a good movie about that. There has not been like a, like a, I'd watch a dramatization of insanity, you know? Oh, absolutely. That's a great idea. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, maybe we should edit that and, uh, and take that one to the, to the execs. Just kidding. We'll leave it. Uh, all right. Talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narmal Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. 